welcome to Bar Fitness Cast episode two. This is our first full episode, and what better way to start than to be introducing our very own CWH. Chris is gonna be talking through his journey as a professional athlete and Olympian, as well as talk to the mindset and commitment it takes to be operating at the peak level of a sport. We'll also spend some time discussing what it's been like transitioning from professional swimmer to self-employed personal trainer and get some insights into what he's working on right now and plans for the future. So Chris, our first full episode. Um, I think it's great to start with yourself as the the first guest, I would say. the show is going to be meeting a lot of different people in the in the weeks and months to come. We've got PTs, we've got elite athletes, we've got uh, up and coming stars, we've got academics, and there's a number of those elements that kind of feed into your career from, I guess, your love of swimming as a kid into it becoming uh, a serious concern and then uh, actually becoming a, a full-time job and then obviously now I guess the last year transitioning into uh, being a PT and building your I guess your business and your brand um, post leaving your professional career so I think it'd be great for us to dig into your career to date uh, kind of where did it start from the swimming perspective and um, and uh, I think you know it'll be a really good uh, insight into some of the journey you've been on which has kind of led us to meeting and, and getting this venture off the ground yeah well I mean they're happy to talk about it um, I think as I touched on briefly in the first episode obviously I can't speak for most parents but just learning to swim it's a good life skill to have my kids will do it as I'm sure most parents would want their kids to be able to swim, whether you're on holiday, abroad, you fall in a pond, whatever it is, it's just something that's worth having under your belt, you know, be savvy about it. But from as young as I can remember, family holidays, I just I just loved being in the water. I don't anymore, <laughs> but I did at the time. And that just, again, just grew on me and more and more things became like more prominent of like me being in the water. So just that, serenity the you're on your own you're in your head it's it's quiet it's peaceful Mm. it's you're testing yourself you're putting your body through a lot of work whether you're learning to swim or competing or training whatever aspect it is it's you and the water there's there's nothing else you can do under there so i sort of fell in love with that i suppose this is a weird thing to fall in love with but after that it just escalated and it became you know went from learn to swim to okay, let's go swimming training. You know, you meet some friends. It becomes a social part of your life. You know, you go to school, you come back, you go training. It's more for just the social element, I think, and the enjoyment of the sport. And coming to after sort of GCSE times, what was I, 15? um, I was scouted to go to Australia to train on a full full scholarship, study, full board, private education, like the full works, you know, nothing that I could afford or my background would have, you know, I was just a normal kid. Um, So I bit their arm off, you know, I was a chance in a lifetime. But then for me, that's, that's where reality struck. That was, okay, this is serious now. This is what I was training four or five times a week, maybe to, you're moving away from home at 15, 30, 35,000 miles away. Like you can't just come home because you're not feeling it. 
and you're going up to like 10 training sessions a week. Uh, your gym work goes up. You're in private education now. There's no, there's no messing about now. You can't be bunking off school. or, and, and like I said before, it was an opportunity for me to prove that I wasn't a dumbass. You know, I failed my, not necessarily failed my GCSEs, but I got really bad, really bad grades because I didn't care for school. I was above the system effectively. And then was given another opportunity to get this private education and get the equivalent to A-levels, which are OPs at the time, or that's what they're called in Australia. Very different grading system. But for me, it was like, okay, like I got to pull my finger out now. I can't be, I can't do this for the rest of my life. Let's get some grades. Let's prove that I can swim. And after that, it really just escalated. Um, they sort of took a, took a chance on me. A lot of kids, you're given the opportunity, you can say yes or no. So they take six a year, like top six males. And I was like 12th in line. But that year, for some reason, nobody wanted to go. So eventually they got down the rung and they got to me and they're like, Chris, do you want to go? And I was like, yes. And, but mine came with like a lot of rules and regulations. It was, okay, well in uh, like, like KPIs, like performance indicators by so-and-so month, you have to have beaten this time. You have to have beaten this person. You have to be ranked this. You have to be this in the junior world rankings. So there was a lot more pressure on my scholarship than some of the other lads that were sort of younger talents, so to speak, where I was a real late bloomer. Um, but obviously I hit all of those indicators and that's again, where I just sort of that validation towards my career of like, you are good at this. This is something we could be good at. Let's, let's keep going. And before you went to Australia, were you doing kind of like county scene? Was there meets and things like that? Or was it really very much kind of like a hobby, so to speak? Yeah, it's more hobby. I didn't take much interest in it. I've always been competitive. So at any chance I can attempt to beat someone at something, I will try, um, which isn't necessarily a great quality to have. <laughs> but yeah, to be part of a swimming club, you have to enter certain events. So counties, districts, like your low level stuff that most parents, swimmer parents will know about, all their kids go to. Um, but did it more for one I liked winning like that was and i was lucky enough no disrespect if anyone clocks onto this but i was part of a county that wasn't very swim talented like there were some counties that were like crazy um but i could go to my county and i could win the counties and it wouldn't be too difficult and that's not that's not a cocky thing that's more just luck um because then as soon as i went to like age group nationals i would go from being like one in the county to like 35th in the in the, in the nation so that's just you know swings and roundabouts but yeah, it very much once you then, once I took that step to Australia and it became, I suppose it wasn't a career choice, but it was, it was then like, this is going to be a career choice, mm. a career path. It, um, you know, you start looking at European junior championships, world junior championships. And then by 2008, 2009, I'm looking at like senior events. Cause once you hit 18 as a male and a female, you're, you can compete at senior level at any point. So even if you're 15, you can still go to the Olympics. But once you get to 18, you can't compete in your age group. You are just open. There is no fallback. Right. So whereas some juniors can go, do you know what? I'm not going to go to the world championships. I'm going to go to the world junior championships. Once you get to 18, you don't have that choice. So like 2008, 2009 came around. And that was that where I had to make the transition from being a successful junior to backing up my talent, being like, okay, I was good in this age group in Europe and the world, but now I'm with the big boys. Let's go. So, so you moved to Australia. Mm. And the regime is rigorous, to say the least. <laughs> yeah. What does training look like in, in, in a full scholarship environment? It's intense. It's really intense. Um, 
And it's hard to explain it because my coach out there, who is effectively like a father figure as well, because like we're 15, okay? Like we're adolescents, we're teenagers, we're confident, competitive kids. Like we're personalities. That's a lot for one man to take on. And he was ex-Marine, so disciplinarian. And I mean, like I had my work, he had his work cut out, but Christ, he whipped my ass into shape. Um, and I had a lot of like criticism throughout my life, uh, sort of being like, you know, you weren't good enough, or you weren't gonna make it. But he is one of the very few coaches that like saw, saw whatever it is I needed to be good. And he was like, he even said to my parents, he was like, you're gonna hit a point in your life where you plateau. And he was like, if you get through that, like you will be good. Mm. But he's like, that will make or break you. Like it make, make or breaks most, athlete, uh, most athletes. And I hit this from 2009 when I like broke the British record, came back from Australia, you know, went to the world championships and stuff. Three years, I didn't swim any faster, which is a long time. Bearing in mind, we don't make a lot of money at all. Um, I wasn't going to university. I didn't have a job. And I was like, no, no, this is it. This is my year. This is my year. And to constantly just be like, nah, not your year, not your year. Um, for it all then to finally come true, just like it's nice to then look back and be like, Do you know what he believed from like day dot. He was like, you've got it. You've just got to get through it. Um, so like, a lot of credit goes to Australia and him as a coach, um, Chris Nesbitt, if he's listening. Uh, but yeah, the regime changed. Again, it became just very military, like, mm. I was up at 4.30 in the dorm. I would walk down to the pool for 5.15. We would stretch, we'd get in the pool, two, two and a half hour session. We'd get into our school uniform on poolside. We'd walk up to the dining hall. We'd have our breakfast, whatever. And we'd walk straight from breakfast to first like roll call or first class. Normal like six hour school day or whatever you wanna call it. And then from last period, last class, I would walk out of the classroom down to the pool down into most hogs and straight into the pool again, do it again from the pool up to the dinner hall. I'd have dinner. And cause it was uh, religious, we'd then go to chapel and then chapel straight to the boarding house for two hours of compulsory prep. So I'd have to do my schoolwork. And then, I mean, by that time I, I didn't even want to be an arsehole. I had to go to bed. I was tired. I had to do it all again the next day. So it was hard. And then you start missing home or you get sick or you miss your friends or you fall out with your teacher or you've had a row with your coach. And there's nothing you can't hide. So I grew up really quickly, but then I credit the time I spent in Australia to where I am as a human and as I, where I got to as an athlete. So it's it was a massive turning point from swimming as a hobby to, okay, I'm doing this. This is, I'm chasing a dream here. in the Australian regime, were you then competing across um, different competitions as well? Were you, were you being picked up for stuff like that? Or was it very much about training, getting your talent up, starting hitting the KPIs as you, as you mentioned? You still had, because we were, it was all fully paid for. So we had to come back to the UK for certain competitions. We had to come back for like UK nationals, European junior championships, world junior championships, wherever they were, I think ours was in Belgrade and Mexico. Um, so you travel to and from, but then cause we're in Australia as well, we do the domestic meets in Australia. So there's lots of school galas, uh, all, the, all the private schools come together to compete. It's really intense. It's probably the second most intense competition to the Olympics that I've done. So it's crazy. And 
yeah, it's just, it, it, it is, it's the same as being based in the UK, but you're just doing it out there in Australia. So everything I would compete here, I'm doing that. We'd go to state championships. So like Queensland state, cause we are based in Queensland or we'd go into Victoria or Melbourne, do the Vic, Vic state champs, like same, same principle, just different country. And when you say it's funded, was that British sport funding it? Was it what, you know, what was the idea of sending British talent or potential talent to Australia? What, what was it that Australia was, had? Was this a, an experiment or? Yeah, so it was, I suppose, they, this is what was always referred to as the brainchild of a guy called Bill Sweetham, uh, love or hate him, but he would send out six lads. And the reason they didn't do girls at the time was because that's a time in a girl's life where lots of things are happening, lots of things are changing, and it's not necessarily the right time to be like, let's go away 35,000 miles away. That was my phone ringing. <laughs> Damn. Um, but like, it wasn't the time to go away. And and like send them away from their family, their mum, their friends, you know, it's, it's an intense time. So it was just lads. And British Swimming funded six of them, which included, um, I mean, we must have flew to and from Australia in a year, six times. So that alone, you know, you're looking at, they reckoned it cost about $50,000 per person. Cause then you're looking at like the school fees as well. Um, and when I say we got the scholarship, the scholarship from us was from British Swimming. They still paid for our tuition fees through the Southport school. And, but it slowly stopped because too many out of six lads, uh, I think the year before me, their time finished, one continued to swim, five left. So that's like you know, quarter, much of a quarter of a million investment. just gone down the drain. And yeah, we've lived the dream for two and a half, three years. But then it was just like, there wasn't enough turnover. Um, and then my year was the last year they sent anyone out. So. Um, it was sad to see it fail because obviously it was such a pivotal point in my career. But then at the same time, you can see why it ended. And yeah. So at what point then do you make the decision to come back from, that was just the end of the scholarship. You come back to the UK. What's the decision process like then? Because we've got great schools over here. There's some, you know, some really renowned swimming schools as well. Yeah. Um, were people sort of knocking down your door after what you'd just been doing for two years to, to grab you into their program or we, did you have to go and scout yourself? So it actually gets really messy, um, especially when you're having to deal with it on your own. So as our time was coming up in Australia, we had, or some of us got approached by universities in America. So the collegiate system is massive. You look at any sport, swimming itself is massive. Like it's a different world. Um, so I was scouted by like Arizona, Arizona State, Florida State, uh, Florida, um, all of these ones. And eventually like I, I picked one. I was just like, do you know what? Like you'll get this, you'll get that. You don't have to pay for anything. And he was just like, oh, sick. Okay. <laughs> so came back for like two months, I think back home and then flew straight out to FSU. And basically found myself in a bit of a trap. So without delving too much into it, you can't be part of the collegiate system if you're a professional. Professional means you take money for your sport. Okay, so if you see people like for anyone that knows swimmers, like Missy Franklin went to the world championships, break a world record, it's 30 grand straight up. She's not allowed to take that money because she's in the collegiate system. So she like she just, nah, I don't want that 30 grand. She doesn't get it later, She that's just gone. She doesn't get it because of the, the collegiate program. So it's really difficult. And then I got there and they were like, me being part of the Australia scholarship system, they classed me as semi-pro, even though I didn't take any money because I'd been paid to do something. They were right. like, 
you can't represent the university for like two years and kind of just defeated the object of being there. And I was like, there's no point in me coming here for the one thing that I can't do. So I opted, I was just like, you know what, I'm gonna leave. And then came back to the UK. And like you said, there's a load of swim schools, beacon clubs. Um, and at the time, British Swimming set up things called national training centers. So they were like hubs of excellence up and down the country. And you could have 16 swimmers there, I think total. You had some head coaches and you had support staff, uh, strength and conditioning coach, uh, physio, soft tissue, doctor, psychologist, like everything under one roof. Um, so it's everything you could need. And you were sort of interviewed, you're allowed into it. And that was it. Like that's that became my home. And I had to choose between Bath and Loughborough. Um, just because those were the, I wasn't going to Scotland. I wasn't going to go to Wales. And I think Manchester was one at the time as well, but I just Loughborough or I'd spent time at Loughborough before and I hadn't been to Bath, but I thought there was a coach there I liked or I'd heard a lot about. And I thought, you know what? He can probably like handle my shit. So, um, and that was it. I came to the city and for every reason that anyone that lives here knows as I fell in love with it, it was beautiful. It was a gorgeous day. Uh, the training facilities at the time weren't great, but for me, it was a package deal. Like the training facilities at Loughborough were fantastic. But if anyone knows Loughborough, I mean, like is dead. Um, so it was like, a, it was just a package deal. I fell in love with it. And that's, that was my story. I just been there ever since I spent best part of what, 2008 till 2018. So best part of 10 years training out of the STV at the university. And that's a hell of a complex up there, right? Well, it is, it is, it's grown over time because it was a new training center. They over time plowed loads of money into it. And then we had a massively successful 2016, like we were the standout center. Like we got six Olympic medals, I think between us, which is for a center of 16 people, that's pretty good. Mm. And so then obviously like money got plowed into it. People were like knocking on the door. Like we want to come in, we want to come in. Um, so it was nice to see from like 2008 when there was three people there and we had like two lanes and it was just like Deadsville to now where it's one of the highly renowned ones in the UK. So it's quite, and it's nice to think that I was a part of that journey and its success at the same time. And, and just recently they've opened even more of the, the training facility. I think there's a new gym that's gone in. Yeah. Uh, I know that even people from the public can go in and have you know, physio with the, with, the, yeah. uh, with the teams up there, which, which is great. And I think even uh, some of the premiership footballers, uh, football teams have got offices there and scouts yeah. and, and all sorts of, of different um, functions are based out of, of the SVT. So that, that's obviously great for the city as well. Do you feel like the, the city and, and the SVT kind of integrate a great deal or not? Now, nah, honestly, it's like a bubble up there. This like one of the things that hit me the most through my transition is you, like when you live and breathe your sport, whatever that is, whether it's modern pent, whether it's football, rugby, bath rope, like whatever mm. it is, you don't, all I ever saw was that like the STV and you'd go to and from, to and from, not realizing like where you actually lived and what you actually did and the people that were around in that environment, you know, it's, it's mad. And it was, it wasn't hard leaving it, but I feel there could be a better job to like integrate the systems, not the systems, but the environments because it's just up there tucked away on its own mm. and you kind of forget about it you know about it but you don't hear or see a lot about it and you've got southampton academy based out of there like there's some big big stuff going on up there and like you said the new gym there's so many gyms popping up around here they've just had like a multi-million pound refurb and it's like 
no one really knows about it, but it is it is out of the way on top of a hill. So and you can get a membership there as a regular public. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can. It's it's one of those ones. It's like you'll pay a premium. You'll pay more than most, but it's also a student facility. So there are places like you know Fitness First or Pure Gym, which are designed for the student clientele and stuff like that. Whereas this is going to cost you more, and you still have that student clientele. So I feel like it's a tough environment to make a sale in, but at the same time, I've trained there for 10 years, they're fantastic facilities, but I also didn't have to pay for them. So biased, I suppose. So not long after joining Bath Uni, your senior international career really starts to blossom, right? Yeah. So talk us through that. What what was what was happening? Because I'd imagine only just being eight months into your time at Bath, a lot there's still a bit, period of adjustment going on. Yeah, like like you would see in any sport, you change a manager in football, you change a training venue. There's that transitional period. It's you don't expect to see results. You say for the first season, first year. So I sort of got my head down. Was just like no one really believed in me except for him. And I was like, you know what, head down, just train hard, see what happens. I'd kind of wrote off the year. Um, and in March, so I'd maybe been like five, six months, you always have the UK nationals or the trials, we call it. It's always called trials because you're trialing to be selected for the senior competition in the summer, uh, which changes every year. So one year is Europeans, one year is Worlds, one year is Commonwealth, one year is Olympics, uh, cycles. And went to the trials, I was the underdog. You had like the two top, so top two go. So first two to the post go. And, you know, there was a guy, James Goddard, British record holder. Like I, he was two seconds faster than me. He was not on my radar. I was like, it's not going to happen. I was like, maybe trying to push for second. Um, and as that was a rival that we'd been competing for years and years and years. He's now a good friend of mine, Marco. And like I was the underdog. It was like, these two are going to the world championships. Like I was just, I was there for a good time. <laughs> And I don't know, maybe no pressure, just like not a care in the world, went in and, and won it. And massive PB, like took a second off. I was the only person to go this time and just came as a shock. And then I was like, oh shit, like, I'm good. <laughs> and so they took me to the world championships and they were like, again, very much like we're not sort of expecting much. It was probably just a standout swim, like isn't going to really back it up. Um, so then like went on to knock another second off, broke the British record that James Goddard had held for a few years and like came eighth, I think in my first ever senior world championship. So I was eighth fastest person in the world at 18, 19, which for me was like from a kid that was like, he doesn't have the ability to make it. It was very much like two fingers up, like, okay, now what? Let's go. Um, and that was like my first taste of senior competition. Okay. No medal, but I don't think anyone, I wasn't expecting to get a medal. I wasn't expecting to go. So to just to come away with like the record and what I did and the confidence and the new times was just like, just affirmation that was like, okay, like let's see where this can go. And that confidence piece, how did that then trans translate into the drive for training? You know, cause I talked to you a lot about, you, you put in so many hours, so many Ks in the pool for a 50 second race or a minute <laughs> yeah. race or whatever it may be. There's so many hours of work that go into achieving that, you know, perfect 50 second swim. Yeah. When you're out of the pool and you've had a real confidence boost like that, did you did you notice a change in yourself in terms of were you training harder or was it just you 
the confidence just kind of found you another gear? Um, in the early stages, so after that, I got really co- like really cocky. Like I just thought I could cruise by on whatever whatever got me there, and taking sessions off here and there, just being a bit lax, just like flowing through on talent. I didn't have a lot of it. I had some, obviously, but not as gifted as some of the kids are out there today. Um, which I then sort of blame most of my plateau on. It was three years long, but I I found every reason under the sun to not blame myself. It was my coach. It was my training partners. It was the program. It was where I was living. It was this, it was that. And then eventually got to the point where there was nothing else to blame other than myself. And once I got over that hurdle and realized that it was my fault and I was just being an arsehole, um, because I was still being funded again, I was in a lucky position. I like, I sat down with coach and like, I flunked at the 2012 Olympics. I basically came out of that, said to my parents, I was like, that's it, I'm done. Like, I can't, I can't handle any more failure. Like I can only take so much and gave it like three or four months out of the pool and had to go back. I had done finished business. I, I knew I was better than that. Sat down with coach and he was just like, you've got to reinvent yourself. You've got to change everything. You've got to be the first one in the pool, last one in the pool. You've got to do everything right. Eat well. You can't go out and party. Like your social life come after. It will be there when you're done. Which unfortunately I only sort of realized now that I've retired, I'm like, oh, it is still here. Yeah, I can still get drunk now. Yeah, okay. Um, but at the time it's like, you feel like you're giving up the world. Um, but stuck to it, gave myself four years, reinvented myself and drew on competitions like that, where I was like, do you know what? Like I, I can be good at this. If I was that good training like that, like imagine how good I can be. And then things just started, like rewards started coming, you know, that year up 2013, I had my first senior international medal and which was a bronze but then the guy that beat me got done for drugs so i actually got a silver like three years later not the same but still um and then it just escalated i went from like european silver medalist 2013 2014 double commonwealth champion which my first international gold and i broke the commonwealth games record that still stands today and then that went to 2015 where i became world champion we broke the world record again like and things i never thought i would ever ever do which then obviously having those three years going into 2016, like a chance to redo my Olympic dream. And I came away with a silver medal. And I my dream was only ever to go to the Olympics, not to ever get a medal. That was just a bonus. Um, but everyone was firing on all cylinders. And yeah, I mean, it was just you know, mad. And then it started to trail off. Like I'd not fallen out of love with the sport, but just I got tired. It's hard and... I had a few injuries and niggles and lost the motivation. I wasn't going to do another four years. And yeah, just sort of slowly unwound from there, really. So application is key. Oh, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> consistency right. as well. Like my coach always used to say to me, like, consistency is key. And I was like, what's consistency got to do with everything? It's about one race of the year. But then I realized it's, it's day in, day out making it count, making your bad days better. Like everyone can have a good day. If you have a bad day or you turn up and you don't want to be there, find something else to focus on. So if I'm not swimming fast or I'm not training as well as I need, focus on my tumble turns, focus on my underwater, focus on my breathing, on my starts, on my technique. Just find a silver lining to your cloudy day. Like even if you're just going to the gym and it's off, like your squats are terrible. Or like one of my clients is, oh, the cleans aren't going very well today, but no doubt she's going to bang out some absolutely killer deadlifts or back squats. So it's, you could start a session bad. It doesn't mean the session has to be bad. You just, you make your bad ones better. And then that whole consistency is key. You just stuck with me and 
that stuff just resonates throughout everything I do now. Just you hear trying it. to be consistent. You hear it quite a lot, don't you? Which is just turning up is to start. Yeah. Like just getting there. Exactly. And, and, and <laughs> I know there's some habit stuff that we'll, we'll talk about in the future. And, and, and for those people like, oh, do I want to get out for a run today? It's like, just put your trainers on yeah. and just run for 10 minutes. Yeah. And when you're out there for 10 minutes, you're thinking, well, I'm already out here. You're 10 minutes so, away from home. So keep, keep going. <laughs> yeah, right. And so I guess that sort of turning up is key, yeah. mental. But like you say, there is enough variety in sport, in fitness, in training to mix it up and yeah. focus on a particular area, which is all going to come together at the in, the in the main race, in the main event or whatever it is, you know, in the technique that you're trying to perfect, right? Yeah. Um, great. So I know that a number of those things have... Have, have sort of moved into your later career now, which is this last year of transitioning into PT. But before we get to that, you, you started to touch on it there about that decision to, am I going to go for another four-year effort? Yeah. Am I going to go to the next Olympics? Because I think you and I have discussed many times, it's about that, right? That's the show where everyone yeah. wants to hit their, their peak performance. And so you started to do that self-assessment to say, have I got this in me? Do I want another go at this? Mm. I'm going to be X age by the time I get to that window. It's an if with, you know, all the training and the investment. So at what point did you say, you know what, now's the time? Um, you're right, because British swimming and UK lottery funding and everything is focused on the quadrennial. Everything that comes in between is great, but all the funding and targets come down to that Olympic Games. And... Our plans are based around that four-year cycle. So I think I got to the Olympics and in Rio and I'd got that medal and I was so emotionally drained. Like my dad was, you know, diagnosed with an illness and just like everything I just sort of like pushed aside because I was like, this is now or never. Just all came at once and it was like, um, it just hit me like a train and like, like even, even sitting here now is like, I'd worked really hard for a year. Soon as I'm two days away from taking two weeks off, full blown ill. Like as soon as you know it's coming to an end, it just all comes out. And I think I got, got to the end of Rio and I sat on the end of my bed and I like medal in hand. And I was just like, I was with my roommate at the time, um, Andrew Willis. And I was just like, do you know what? Like I'm done. Like I knew in my head I was done, but everyone says you get the medal, you got to hang around for the money. Like you work hard swimming. There's no money in this sport. You get endorsements. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's been fun, but I no way set up for life. I had to go straight into work to pay bills. Like just in case there's any delusion out there. Um, but it was knowing that it was going to come to an end, but I had such a good relationship with my coach that I was just like, I said to him, I was like, look, I'm done 2018, but I, I did 2017, cruised another medal. It was easy. We had such a talented team. It was easy for me to get another medal. So that got me funding for another year. So that's another year I didn't have to work. And I was like, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Still trying to find my feet. And then 2018 came around and I missed the Commonwealth Games, but I wasn't really training. Like I was annoyed that I didn't make it because I wanted to defend my title. Um, but didn't make it. So that kind of hurt. But then looking back at it, I'm like, I didn't put in the work. I didn't deserve it anyway. And again, so funding ends like August time. So I was like, I'm going to do like one session a day, like bare minimum, just to secure my funding and just live the good life. Did nothing, sat on my ass, went out with friends, holidays, did everything that I was all of a sudden allowed to do. And my coach was aware that it was coming to an end. I'd said like, look, once this season ends in 2018, like I'm... I'm out, like I'll announce my retirement. 
Um, and I was lucky enough to be in a position where he respected that. And it was like, he wasn't still drilling it into me. I was like, I was turning up, do like 3K, I'd do my bit and then I'd leave. I was positive. I was still a, like an integral part of the team. Like I was a senior member. I'd been there for like 10 years. I wasn't taking the piss, but you know, he held the fort down. He was like, he was still telling like the head honchos that, yeah, no, Chris is still very much like keen, like he's in it. But I wasn't, like, I was tired, I was old. And I got chronic, chronic tendinopathy in my left elbow. I'd had like four cortisone injections, which for anyone that knows, and I'm sure a lot of rugby players do, doesn't fix it, it just masks the problem. And it got to the point where it was just so painful. They were like, look, you either have surgery or like you knock it on the head. And just like a culmination of things, I was like, I'm just happy to call it a day there. And I did it on my terms. I wasn't forced out of the sport. My funding wasn't cut. I rode it out, took my retirement bonus, did everything I wanted to do, except plan for what I wanted to do next. <laughs> so all the time I thought I was using to prepare, I didn't, so. So thanks for that. It's a great high level insight, I think, in, into the career to date. And, and you talked about sort of planning what's next and you then suddenly decide, okay, uh, <laughs> the bills are still dropping. Yeah. What did you try? So, I mean, you take a step back a little bit more. So depending on how long you've been on the UK lottery funding program, when you announce your retirement, you're given like a, th up to three months of continuated, continuated funding. Um, and so then I, I officially retired. I had no, didn't have to do any training and I had three months to effectively plan the next steps. And I was like, yeah, no, no, no. I got loads of time, loads of time, loads of time. Money's still coming in. I'm like, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine. Then like, I did this in like October. So I had October, November, December paid for. I was like, yeah, I have a job like new year all set up. And Obviously I didn't go to university, so I didn't have a degree. I chose sport, um, had no idea what I wanted to do. I knew what I was good at. I was competitive. I was talented at swimming. <laughs> that was, that's all I really knew. I'd never explored any other avenue. I took my per my fitness instructing and my personal training and my swim coaching and a load of other sort of uh, background certificates that I could do while I was training just as fullbacks, but I never really thought about being a PT. Um, so for me, I, this tech sales job came up in Chippenham and I was like, okay, went through the interview process and they were like, you know, we're looking for someone that's like driven, competitive. I was like, yeah, tick, tick, that's me. And then obviously the ability to make loads of money really quickly and like sales and commission, I can talk, I'm happy to talk. I feel like I can hold my own, um, build a connection, build a rapport. So I thought, okay, maybe maybe this is the right path. Like lots of people fall into it. Uh, they like really grilled me through the interview process. Like one interview I had to do, and it was like real intense, like MD and the, the guys that would be above me, big round table, never been in this situation before. Past that, they're like, okay, like this is your first job. And I was asking for, they give you a range of salary. I was like, I'm 28, like I want, I need up here. I don't want none of this. And, they were like, okay, well, if you want this, you need to put a presentation together and come and deliver it to the MD and these two guys. And I was just like, oh. I was like, I don't want the job this badly. <laughs> but I was just like, do you know what? Out of my comfort zone, did it, smashed it. They were like, job's yours, pays yours. I was like, it's ecstatic. I was like, first job. Hmm. They really want me. And 
it's like the most depressive I've ever been in my life. Like I hated it. It wasn't for me. And that's no disrespect to anyone that does it or kills it. Cause the guy that was above me was like 24 and he's on 120 K a year. Like he was killing it. So I was like, that was my incentive, but I just couldn't do it. I didn't want to sit behind a desk. I didn't want to sit on the phone. I didn't want to talk to people that didn't want to talk to me. And I just sort of felt my life spiraling a little bit. The, the way I saw it was like, this can't be everyday life for the next 40 years of my life. Like I, I'm so used to routine. I enjoyed having routine back after not doing anything for X amount of months. But I remember texting my best mate being like, this, this isn't it, this, surely this ain't it. Like I must really not like it. And he was like, no mate, this is the working world. And he's, his opinion is something I'd never go back on, but, and I would always trust it. But I just, I knew, I was like, this isn't right. And I gave it maybe like three weeks. And I thought, you know, I'll try and get out of this funk. And I couldn't, like I hated it. And it was just, I didn't want to be that guy that was like living for the weekend and just hating life in between. And I know like a job is a job, but then now looking back on where I am now, I can safely say that was like not right for me. What's interesting about that? So with what I do, um, a lot of people just stick, right? Yeah. Because... The pay's coming in, yeah. that's the most important thing. The courage to actually take that step and go, this isn't for me, I'm not fulfilled, is a real tough one for a lot of people. So I kind of wonder what in your past, you know, for all of your career kind of drove you to say, well, not drove you, but gave you that confidence to go, actually, I'm not gonna stick at this because before you know it, three weeks turns into six weeks, turns into six months, two years later, you're doing the same thing. And uh, and I do think this is relevant in the fitness scene and everything else because it's all about mindset. Yeah. It's about mindset to commit to something you're passionate about. And clearly with what you were doing there, it just wasn't fulfilling you as an individual and therefore you weren't gonna get the best of yourself regardless of the paycheck. Yeah, it was hard because obviously like in terms of fulfillment and what I'd had previously, those those were big boots for me to try and fill. So I was trying to be realistic at the same time because it wasn't gonna be like life was before. So it was trying to find that balance between, look, am I just being like a bitch and bailing out because I've never had to work a day in my life? Or is this just really not for me? And obviously like stepping away from it and going, okay, I'm gonna go self-employed as a PT. I've got no clients, I've got no job, I've got no income, um, was, petrifying because I'm so like routine OCD, like paying stuff on time to like having been funded, paid monthly as most people would been for the last 10 years of my life to not know how much is coming in when it's coming in was crazy. So luckily that the F45 gig turned up and that was great. But again, I'm not, I hadn't been a PT before I qualified. I worked out my entire life, but people had to take a punt on me. So I kind of used the credentials that I had to sort of separate myself a little bit, but then I had to follow up with the goods. Um, but then the job at F45 was seven hours a week. And that's not, that's not enough to live on. And I just moved out of my place. I lived in, in like the center of Bath and I'd moved in with my best mate just to sort of find my feet. And it was tough, but then it was just like, okay, no, like you're good at this, like you can be successful. And then met people, things started to escalate, bumped into the guys that fly the owners. They were like, we'd love to use you. And just like domino effect, bang, bang, bang. And then clients, people call me PT, did it. That's how I met you. And then PT together. And to the point now where I'm dropping hours because I'm so busy or 
um, making sure that I take time off. Like one of the perks of being self-employed is I can do what I want, like when I want, but at the same time is I don't, I just go and I go and I go and I go. And it's been a massive learning curve, but I didn't think I'd be where I was right now, sitting here, if I'm honest. So <laughs> Yeah, it's great. So um, I guess looking back over the last 12 months, then that's got to be pretty satisfying. Oh, 100%. It's, it's been a massive learning curve, like mentally, physically, emotionally, tax rebates. Yeah, doing my own taxes, <laughs> cash is king, you yeah. know, like there's loads of things that have been so hard hitting and so daunting and, and like my sister who's just gone self-employed asking me all these questions, I can now answer and I now see it as this is the norm, like, I wouldn't have it any other way. Like I don't want to be employed. I don't, I don't want a nine to five job. I love what I do. And it's so cliche and I say it all the time, but like, if you enjoy what you do, it's still a job. It will always be a job at the end of the day. Sometimes you aren't going to want to do it, but I feel like I don't, I don't have to go to work. Like I enjoy what I do. I love what I do. I love the people I get to meet and the opportunities that have arisen through what I do. And I wouldn't have it any other way. And I just look back at thinking I could still be at that desk because I thought, no, you know, I need to pay the bills, I need to pay the bills. And I'm so glad I just didn't, I didn't in one instance listen to my mate and just did it myself. And I'm so grateful I did. I'm proud of myself. <laughs> I remember you and I sitting down a good few months ago, maybe six months ago in the summer. We were in one of the restaurants in Bath, one of the many restaurants in Bath <laughs> yeah. that we frequent. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember you saying to me that you'd made a conscious decision to just say yes more. Be a yes man, yeah. Right? And, and, um, and even with this venture here, you know, it's, it's a bit of a hobby, it's a bit of a pun. The feedback so far has been great just after the little 15 minute intro. Yeah. People are genuinely interested in kind of some of the guests we've got coming on. <laughs> so to, take, to say yes to this kind of stuff, how's that been for you in, in terms of, you know, what doors is it opening? Um, well, the, I mean, the reason it come about is because as an athlete, you're so dedicated to your sport and your dream and the cause that you say no to everything unless it benefits you, you can't, do you want to go on this random ski holiday? I can't, I can't, I can't hurt myself. Do you want to come out tonight? Well, I can't, I've got training at five in the morning. Do you want to come out on the weekend? I can't, I'm in Manchester for a competition. And it's horrible. It is actually horrible being in that position sometimes because you do sometimes, you just want to get away from it all. So I actually got it from a friend of mine and you know, Michael Jameson went through retirement before I did. And a lot, a lot of what I do, I learned from him. So he would be like, I'm just a yes man. I just say yes to everything. And I would never be a yes man, but like the people I've met who just been like, do you know what? Yeah, like, let's go, let's do it, why not? And then this is like, this has been daunting sometimes when it all gets a little bit, you're like, oh, we're doing this. Wait, how, how should we do the intro? And then you're, and you're like, just, no, just, just do it. And I'm so, I'm so grateful for what I've done and the people I've met to just being like, do you know what? What, like, what have I got to lose? As long as there's nothing to lose, why not? Like. And I just feel like it's it's such a good attitude to have, and it's changed and shaped me. I've not not as an adult because I've been an adult for a while, but in the second chapter of my life, it's it's sculpting the way I want to sort of continue down that that path. Yeah, great. So we're about to embark on new year, new decade. Mm. Uh, it's been a good twelve months since retiring from uh, elite level sport. I know the client base for you is building. Um, I know that you're 
got quite a diverse group of clients as well, which I think is great, right? You know, some trainers are very focused on a certain type of person who they feel they can work with and get the best out of. Yeah. Um, and, and I know that you spend hours researching uh, and looking into what it is is going to get the best out of what the client wants. For the new year, um, what's the kind of plan, aspirations, kind of more the same, keep building the kind of the... The routine, how do you see the new year shaping up? So like, as a lot of people have, you know, lots of goals going into the new year, I've got my own, um, some, some trivial. So for me, it's like, I'd like to deadlift 200 kilos. It's probably my weakest movement. I think my best is like 160 at the moment, but just something I can chase, not too far out of reach. I feel like I can do it. I just got to commit to it. Just little everyday things. And then it's like, my biggest goal is I'd like to break onto like the online coaching scene. Um, so I got the content, I got the footage, I got the photos, just need to get a website up and running and just branch out. It's trying to utilize my time more effectively because it's very easy to say yes to everyone because I love helping people. I love being part of their journey. But at the same time, being self-employed, the idea is, is that work-life balance is, there's more flexibility around it. But as I found towards the back end of this year, all of the time that was my time was then being filled up for their time, which I love, but I end up burning the candle at both ends. And then eventually, like the last two weeks, it's just been run down. And I had to cancel like a few last minute sessions with clients who all were fantastically understanding, but I don't want to be in that situation again. So trying to branch onto that online scene where, you know, you can, you can train anyone from around the world but you just do it online, you know, face-to-face, -face, Skypes, check-ins, videos, progress reports. Um, and again, just continue trying to add to the brand or add to myself or my own CV that I'm trying hard to work at the moment. And a lot of time going into the podcast, if I'm honest, it's something that I think, well, I'm passionate about and I know you are. And I feel like, like you said, the feedback we've got initially has just only emphasized that passion more being like, okay, like this is, this could be sick. Let's see where this goes. So yeah, those are my goals for 2020. And I'm sure more will arise as the year goes through, but initially that's, that's the plan. Awesome. Well, uh, really appreciate the insight. Um, I know we were talking about a couple of episodes, maybe um, digging into certain parts. We've got an Olympic year coming in. I think um, for those that are interested in the Olympics, definitely listen into future shows where we'll do a bit of a deeper dive into the Olympic bubble and what it's mm. like as an athlete in that in that period. Um, and plus, you know, the build up and the aftermath of Olympics as well. So <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly right. So there's going to be some, uh, again, some great episodes to come, uh, but appreciate your insights over over the last hour. Yeah, guys, again, it's been a pleasure doing this episode. And like usual, make sure you like, subscribe, Insta, podcast platforms. And again, if there's anyone that you'd like to get on the show, please reach out, get in touch, because we'd, uh, we'd love to progress with them.